0: Uh, we are in uh, this series called I can't uh, can't I can quit whenever I want And this is a series um, all about the excuses that we use to avoid dealing with our everyday addictions. You see we all have things that we do to kind of make us feel better that start off as little, Little things that start off as maybe it's occasionally happens, uh, but then escalate into compulsions, right? And maybe maybe it's social media. Maybe it's online shopping. Maybe it's a constant cup of caffeine in your hand. But we all do stuff that isn't good for us. And even though we know that, we know that it's not good for us, we keep on doing it. Why is that? Why do we keep doing it? Right? And so uh, this is what this series is all about. How do we make the change for the better? And so uh, we've had incredible topics so far, and week three is the excuse that we give that it's just something that I do. It's just something that I do. It's not hurting anyone. Maybe you've used that excuse for some of your addictions before. Oh, it's I don't, I'm not hurting anyone really doesn't impact anyone else it's just something that I like to do all right, and we're gonna be addressing that this morning but let me start off by asking you ever had a time where you were so pumped you were so so excited about uh, giving someone a gift giving someone a gift something that that you sacrificed for something that uh, that you worked hard for right, and prepared for to give to someone uh, but then it it didn't really seem to matter to them at all. Like, like you worked really hard, you sacrificed to to make it happen, and then they look at you and be like, "That's the wrong size. That's not the color I want." Oh, I'm oh, I'm over that now. I'm not into that no more. That was on your list two weeks ago, right? And you were so excited because you put in a lot of effort and time and energy. But it didn't matter to them. Maybe as a parent, again, you were scra- uh, scraping and, 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 and saving, driving all over town, fighting for the thing that your kids said they want. But here's the thing. Right? This isn't just a kid thing. This is a human thing. The more focused we are on getting what we want in order to be happy, the less aware we are of what our pursuit of happiness is costing those around us. Does that make sense? We're so gun ho about going after this feeling of being happy that we, if, if only we go, we do this, if only we attain that, if only we want to be happy, we want to be happy, and somehow, somewhere along the road, we've kind of forgotten that our pursuit has caused pain and hurt or blazed the trail of damage to people around us. You see, addiction hyper-focuses you on doing what you want to feel better, right? And blinds you to how that may may, um, be making others' lives worse. So you're so focused on doing the things that make you feel better that it blinds you to the fact that you're hurting other people. It's not just that you don't care, right? It's that you're not even aware of what's going on. You're not even aware. Maybe you've had a few of these realizations as an adult. Maybe that your obsession, right, your obsession with your middle-aged softball team means that no one else in the family can schedule anything on Saturdays. Maybe. Or maybe it's your desperate desire to achieve at work. It means that you're not really paying attention to what's going on at home because you're so hyper-focused at your job. And what makes some of these things hard to see is that you never intended to hurt anyone. That wasn't, that wasn't part of the deal. But the self-centeredness that comes with this impulse prevents you from seeing what you're actually doing. Sometimes our assumption is, the reason you don't want to be around me is because of what I was doing. That's not the whole story, is it? Because when they stop doing it, the relationships don't automatically recover. They don't automatically go back to where it was good. You see, our connections fall apart because of how intently pursuing our thing causes us to disregard causes us to disregard the needs and feelings, expectations and boundaries of others. This is why recovery kind of requires us to realize how unintentionally selfish we've been and the many unexpected ways that rippled out and wounded those around us. For those of you who have spent um, a lot of time with or, or a lot of time with or around an addict, there's a good chance. That they have, they're clueless. They don't have an idea of how badly they have hurt you. Because the truth is that they're not really thinking about you at all. They're focused on them and what they need to do, or what they want to do to make themselves feel better. You see, the pursuit of our obsessions blinds us to the damage that we're doing to others. When we are so hyper-focused and so hyper-intentional on pursuing the things that bring us satisfaction, we neglect and even hurt those around us. This is why so many of the New Testament authors talk, about, uh, talk to us about the importance of being considerate and paying attention to how our actions affect others. Because we all, truth is, we all struggle with this. And the path to healing always involves listening and responding to the stories of others. 1 Corinthians 10.24 tells us, Do not, don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. Do not solely focus on yourself, but on the needs of those around you. Paul says this, Right? To bring it into context, Paul says this right smack dab in the middle of a conversation about people who just want to do what they want to do. Maybe you know someone who just wants to do what they want to do. Interestingly, Paul says it that it's not sinful for them. Right? It's not sinful for them, but it negatively affects them. And what he's basically wanting us Christians to understand is this, that centering your life around Jesus means paying attention to how the things you say and do impact the people around you. Why? Because you cannot follow Jesus and be inconsiderate to others. You can't do both things. You can't be a follower of Christ and not be considerate to those around you. That's an oxymoron. That's like saying you like Coke and Pepsi. You can't. It's one or the other. Like saying the Lakers and the Clippers. No. Always Lakers. Yankees and Dodgers. Yankees, of course. All right, I know I know but guess what you were watching the world series just like we were anyway first John 4 Frankie stop first John 420 says right you cannot love God and hate your brother just can't cannot love God and hate your brother When he uses the word love, the words love and hate here, he's not talking about the way we feel. He's not talking about our feelings, right, towards one another. He's talking about the way our actions affect other people. If you're just doing what you want to do and ignoring the harm it's doing to others, well, let's call it a spade. Let's call a spade a spade. It's unloving. It's unloving. When you do what you want to do for your own benefit and then go out and you harm others. In other words, the more that we love God, church, the more loving we ought to treat others. Can't get any simpler than that. The more that we love God, the more loving we ought to treat others. This was, this was, this was all Jesus is doing. He came here, down to earth, and said, I, "My people are just—they're not—they're not getting this. I need to show this. I need to lead by example. I need to teach them firsthand what this is, what it means to be like this, and the impact it will have." So when people built a relationship. With Jesus, it always, always, it always resulted in, in being more considerate and sacrificial, considerate of and sacrificial towards others, because that's what Jesus did, and that's the model that He wanted to to put on display for us. Be considerate of others. Be uh, sacrificial towards others. Love others. For example, there's a story that we're going to reflect here today. We're going to uh, uh, follow through today here. Found in Luke chapter 19. And it's the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. You probably heard this story before. He was a a tax collector. Right? And, and, And... This story is going to kind of play out before our eyes of just the impact of what Jesus was trying to do. And so Luke chapter 19 verse uh, 1 through 4 says that Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. Someone, who has that problem? problem?" Right? So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. So let's make this easy. Let's, Let's call him Z. Okay. So Z was known for two things. He was known for two things. Number one, he was known for being short. Right, because as a little kid, we start like you haven't seen, ever, you haven't read that story or seen that story for the in kids' church. Like everybody is this big, and Zacchaeus like, is big. Like and they cut it out, and he's just like really big. Anyway, so he's known for two things: number one, he is short, and number two, he's a tax collector. That's two negatives in one sentence. <laughs> short and being a tax collector. I just realized that I just popped in my head right now. Anyway, Jericho was ruled by Rome, which notoriously, notoriously overtaxed its people, and they didn't care how you got it or what you took for yourself just as long as Rome got theirs. So tax collectors utilized soldiers to squeeze people dry and make themselves richer. Z was a Jew. Why is that important, Pastor? Well, I will to show you why it was important because... Being a Jew, he was taxing his own people, right? His own people. He was taxing them. He was working for the Romans to rip off his own people. So basically, he was a traitor. He was a traitor, right? And people hated him for that. So not only is he is he short and he's a tax collector, but he is hated by his own people, For going out and taking their money. Why would someone do this? Why would someone do this? Being universally hated by your own people is hard to ignore. Really? Right? Being hated by your own people is hard to ignore. And yet he kept doing the very thing that was causing that hatred I think it's possible that he grew up feeling like he didn't belong anyway listen if you if you are already convinced that the people around you don't accept you there's not really much risk at doing something else that they don't like right they don't like me anyway I'm going to just keep doing this. Just keep getting under their skin. Right? You're, You're already an outsider. You're already a misfit. But let's be real here. No one can live in a constant state of rejection. So we all eventually start searching for where we can go and who we can fit in with, and what we can do to satisfy our built-in desire for belonging. You know what Z was good at? You know what he was good at? He was good at money management. He was good at reading people. He was good at getting people to hand over their resources. It may have alienated him further from his own people, from the community that he grew up in, but know who liked this side of him? You know who really, really liked this side of him? The Roman government, his employers. They liked him. They really liked him. And so he starts thinking to himself, man, who cares? Who cares what the poor religious people that I grew up with think? Who cares? You know who likes me? You know who really likes me? Who gives me high fives on the street when I walk by them? Who throw out the peace sign to me? Who sends me invites to their parties? Who invites me to go have a drink with them? You know who really, really likes me? The rich and the powerful people who run the world, they like me. I think Z's addiction, first of all, that's not written in the Bible. I just want you to know that. I want to be clear. If you are not really, that's in the Bible? That's just my thought process. But I think Z's addiction was power, money, Achievement, attention. Yeah, those those are his vices. Those are the things that he wanted really, really bad. And then as we read on in the story, uh, verses 5 to 7, it tells us that Jesus goes out to hang out with, with Z in his house. Right? He goes to his house. Now, here's, a, here's, a, here's the ironic thing about this, right? Eating in someone's home was considered a sign of approval and a, an endorsement. If you ate in someone's home, someone invited you to come eat in their house, it was a sign of approval, of endorsement. People didn't like that Jesus was going to Z's house, right? I, You got to go to his house. He's been taxing us. He's been taking our money. He's not really a Jew, you know. He's a thief. He's hurting us, right? They were so mad. They were not happy that Jesus was going there. They felt like he should have been calling him a loser. He's a loser. What he should be doing is he should be repentful. You should be chastising him. You should be calling him out for all the evil things that he has done. doesn't say that in the Bible, but I'm just, play along with me here, right? He should surrender his life to you, Jesus. But Jesus isn't, isn't doing any of that. He's not doing any of that. He's just chilling. He's eating. He's talking. He's laughing. They're just lounging in the house. Right, and the religious onlookers are absolutely furious. Like, what is going? What? What in the world? Like, really, Jesus? Like, you are gonna go to this man's house after he took our money? Are you gonna eat with him, break bread? You gonna listen to some little little karaoke? Like, like, what's up with that? Friends, Jesus, Jesus prioritizes connecting with the lost over convincing them that they were lost. That's what Jesus does. He's more concerned about connecting with them than calling out their sins. Jesus was good at putting himself in other people's shoes. When he encountered someone like Z, he, he probably said to himself, man, I wonder why he lives this way. I wonder, I wonder what's going on. What kind of circumstances would create a person to be like this? What sort of pain would have pushed him to, to, to persecute others? Does he ever feel Bad about what he has done? Does he want to be different? Is he looking for a way out? What would what unconditional love, acceptance, and acknowledgement, and maybe even friendship do to him? I think those are the questions that Jesus was asking as he, as he was conversating with him. And then Jesus, and then Jesus would, would then treat them. That way, with all sincerity, and see what happened. In other words, he would love on them. He would treat them with respect and dignity and consider their feelings and their desires and their thoughts. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 2.4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that that this that his kindness is intended to turn you away from your sin? In other words, kill him with kindness. Get him on your side by being kind, loving and considerate. And there's as evidence of that here in Luke 19:8. For as we read further along, right, it says that Z changed has a change of heart and a change of life by being in the presence of Jesus, by hearing Jesus, or by being on the side of receiving all of the love, the care, and attention that Jesus was willing to give him. Z changed his life. Friends, the more that you get to know the real Jesus, the more it compels you to want to love others the way that he loves you. It has to work that way. There's no other way the equation works out and brings glory and honor to God. There's no other way that you can walk around and say, I'm a believer in Jesus. This equation has to work out this way. I'm a believer in Jesus, thus I love my neighbors. Thus I am considerate of others. Z says, I'll give half of my wealth to the poor. The man that was taking, once taking people's money is now changed it has a change of heart and it says now I'm going to give away money. Friends when we experience some sort of breakthrough in our life, we feel amazing and we want to pay it forward right When God changes our life, we experience some freedom um, from, we experience some freedom from unhealthy habits, from sin and shame and it makes us want to treat other people differently. We're like, man, I want to love others and I want to be a good person. And we meet it. But it's kind of generic. It's kind of generic. You see, everyone everyone wants to do generic good. It's the specific good that's challenging, that's a little more difficult, especially when it involves you owning up and making amends for the specific bad that you have done. That's why it's easier to serve people that you don't know than to serve the people that you have a history with. Oh, I'll volunteer. I'll volunteer at the food pantry, but I'm not going to help my neighbor down the street, kind of who's in need, who's who's lost his job and and, and, and needs some help to bring food to his house. Because that guy's a jerk, you know. I'm not really willing really to help him. But I I'll volunteer at the food pantry. Or, or man, I own up to the surface mistakes. Oh, yeah. I like this. I own up to the surface mistakes that I made on Facebook. Calling people out on Facebook, you know. But I'm not going to have, I'm not going to sit down and have a face-to-face uh, imper- and conversation and personally apologize to my brother for what happened between us. But in this story, Z is specific. He's not generic. Right? Luke 19, verse 8 says, Lord, this is him saying, and if I have cheated people in their taxes, on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. So he's not just saying, I'm just gonna love everybody, all my Jews. Well, my Jews are, uh, well, my Jews, I, no, he's not. That's not what he's saying. He gets specific and he says, man, for all the people that I have cheated, have taken their money, I'm going to give them back four times as much. He's specific in this. Four times as much as a lot, folks. It's also interesting that he says, if. Everyone with everyone that was around there at that moment that can hear that conversation right was like, what, "What do you mean, if? Like you did, you cheated people, a lot of people." And I don't think I don't think he's unaware that he's done anything wrong. I he recognizes it. I think he just doesn't see how badly his actions have hurt the people around him. And I think he stopped asking himself that long a long time ago. But his impulse, his impulse after meeting Jesus, is to put steps eight and nine of the recovery process into practice. Step eight says: Make a list of everyone you've harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. Make a list of everyone that you've harmed and 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 and. Make amends. Start making amends to all of them. And here's why we have to do this, church. Seeing life from someone else's perspective doesn't happen automatically. We're stuck in in, 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 in the fourth gear. We don't see anybody else's perspective but ours. So it's going to require us to be intentional. You're going to have to shift the seat Differently in another place so that you can see someone else's. Luke 6:31 says, Do to others what you would have done or what you would like for them to do unto you. And sometimes, church, it's easier. It's easy to identify what that is, especially with a, a couple of the most publicized addictions. We've seen enough movies about alcoholics, right, to come to the conclusion, man, I shouldn't have gotten drunk at my sister's wedding. I embarrassed her, right? That was not cool at all, right? We've seen that. We've heard that. We understand that. But with others, right, with others, more socially acceptable things or more socially acceptable uh, addictions, it's harder to see. We think, man... My preoccupation with getting a promotion has made me miss a lot of dinners, soccer games, and special moments. I think, I think I, if I think about that from my kid's perspective, I have failed as a dad. Or, man, my obsession with always keeping the house perfectly clean has prevented me from being present with the people that are around me, hearing their stories, showing that I am interested in their lives and living in the moment for the sake of the memory that's unfolding in real time. Which leads us to step number nine. Make direct the men's to others wherever possible except when it would uh, when it would injure them or uh, or them or others. Basically what this means is going to people and offering to do what's necessary to make it right with them. Listen, we all know that the truth that the past, right you cannot redo the past. you can't undo it. You can't make up for it either. But you can definitely put in the work at repairing the relationship and situation as best as you can now in this moment. And it's unconditionally humbling because they get to decide. They get to decide. They get to decide when the relationship is repaired. And what It will take, not you, not you. You don't get to decide. How many times have we said, oh, I said I was sorry. Why why can't you, why can't we just go have dinner? Why can't we just hang out? You don't get to decide that. The person that you've hurt gets to kind of set the terms to this. The second part of this step makes it clear that it was written by someone with kids. Because if one kid was going to ask another kid what they can do to fix things when they're really mad, well, kind of likely that other kid is going to say, well, I need you to roll around the dirt over there. Hit your head on the pole a few times. Right? Kick yourself. Mm." Right? Because they want to see. They want to see you hurt like they've hurt. Truth is that that would just hurt you it, it wouldn't really help them this clause is there to remind us that making amends is about restoration not retribution Does that make sense i tell you this from experience these two steps are not fun some of you are thinking well i don't want to do that i don't want to do that pastor I don't want to tell certain people that I'm sorry and own up to how I hurt them and do whatever thing that they want me to, to do that, that, that they think will make things right. That sounds painful. I don't want to do that. Church, just so you know, the ancient writers of the New Testament agree with you. Hebrews 12, 10, 11 says, For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful, but afterwards there will be a peaceful harvest of the right living for those who are trained in this way. I love that the author acknowledges that you may, <laughs> that you may have a, a dislike to the discipline. Because your parents maybe took it too far with you. But then it reminds us that God, that God is not your parents. And if he's asking you to do something, it's because he genuinely wants to help you experience a full and rich and satisfying life. And he knows that addressing this will move you in that right direction. Training yourself, church, to see the world and treat others differently is a painful process. But everything that you want is on the other side of that training, of that discipline. No one can make you do it. Nope. No one can make you do it. You have to choose that for yourself. You have to choose to want to be better, to want to be more disciplined. But if you do, it'll eventually you'll, be, you'll eventually be glad that you did. And here's the thing. What, what you may not gather from observing a lot of Christians is that according to Scripture, being right with God requires that we humbly work to make things right with each other. So you want to be right with God? Then you have to work at making things right with those around you. So let me wrap this up. Matthew 5, 23 to 24, tells us to go go reconcile immediately. Right now. Go reconcile immediately. Don't waste any time. Do it when you have the opportunity right then and right now. So here's what's wild about that, that today you are sitting here thinking about whatever compulsions, whatever your compulsions are, your addictions. And if you're honest, you're, you're thinking, man, I really want to break free from these things. I know what I'm doing wrong. I know that it's not right. I know it's not benefiting me, and it's definitely not benefiting those around me. And I want—I really do. I want to—I want to be right with God. I want to be right with God. But I want to tell you this morning, my heart. I want to share with you my heart, rather. <clears throat> I think that God is saying to you, what God is saying to you at this very moment, excuse me, is this. That if you really want to get better, you're going to need to leave here and go attempt to make things right with someone. And you know who that is. You know who that is if it's forgiveness that you're looking for from me, from God, you've got it. You have it. The moment that you sincerely asked him, it was granted. It was yours. But I believe that God can see your hurt. That the person that you've hurt only has action uh, has access to your actions. Which means that there may be a journey ahead of you to repair what your obsessive pursuit of happiness has cost that relationship. Now it might be your mom or your dad. It might be your your, your, your children. Might be your brother or your sister. Might be your in-laws. Might be a good friend. Might be an aunt, an uncle, cousin, grandparent, coworker. Only you know who's been hurt by your obsession of wanting to feel good. And what makes this sticky is that sometimes the things that we're addicted to isn't even a bad thing. Isn't really a bad thing. But the way that we've gone about it, the space that is taken up in our lives and the damaging ripple effect that has had on others has cost us and has cost them a lot. Thus propelling it to the top of the list of importance. Church, sometimes recovery involves walking away from that altogether, right? But addressing any addiction will require you to partner with God to put our priorities back in the right order. And according to scripture, relationships are always number one. Always number one. So here's what I'm going to challenge you to do this week. Identify someone that your behavior has negatively impacted. And I want you to tell them that you're sorry. And ask how they... how, how You can make it right with them. Only you know who that person is. But in order for us to live the life that God has purposed us to live, a rich, satisfying life, it's going to require us to do some of the dirty work. And I want to encourage you to do that. Amen?